Welcome to the Connect Church Podcast. Our mission at Connect Church is to help people find and follow Jesus. For more information on who we are and how we're doing just that, visit myconnectchurch.cc. Now, let's jump into this week's message from Pastor Blaine. I invite you to join me in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 this morning. We are week by week fielding different questions. Each each sermon then would stand on its own. Um, not, I mean, it is a series under an umbrella, uh, but but they don't really go week to week. Other than we are looking at at what the scripture has to say about different things. And so uh, I've asked the question, you know, what are some some things that you would like to hear? What does the Bible say about? And so for those of you who this may be your first Sunday with us or, or maybe you haven't been here in a few weeks or, or months, uh, what, what I'm endeavoring to do is to not be to give advice or to give uh, my opinions about things, but rather try to stay as true to what Scripture says and to maybe pull out a few, uh, a few things that, that Scripture uh, has said by principle and so these questions belong to you. Uh, I'm, I'm not uh, manufactured any of them. Uh, and, uh, and so I say all of that to say this. This one is in, uh, pretty polarizing. Uh, now, pretty much there, there may be one other one that's not polarizing for the rest of our time. Uh, they're, they're pretty hot topics. This one I have looked forward to the least. Uh, and here's why. Uh, the question is, what does the Bible say about singleness and waiting? And if I've learned anything in the past years of my life, I will say that the last thing single people want is advice from someone who started dating their wife when they were 12. <laughs> and so uh, it's, it's, it's going to be hard. Now, we didn't stay together. <laughs> we broke up for like three years. <laughs> Uh, but so uh, I understand that uh, that it is polarizing, uh, and so I would encourage you to try to stay with me all the way through. It is a very, very rich and deep topic subject, and I'm going to try my best to handle it in a sensitive way. Uh, and so try to be encouraged by hearing what the Word of God is saying, and don't get caught up in semantics. Okay. So singleness and waiting. And the only reason that singleness would be uh, uh, called out or singled out, if you would, it would is uh, because we're trying to compare it to something else. And the only thing that we would be able to compare singleness to is marriage. It's the only other, only other uh, competition to singleness. So today we're going to talk about the point of both in relationship, we're going to talk about the purpose of marriage, and we're going to talk about the purpose and point of singleness. Now, I would start by saying this, singleness does not belong to you. So if you are single, singleness does not belong to you. It is not yours. And if you are married, you need to understand that marriage, your marriage, does not belong to you. See, we are under God's authority. You are not the owner of anything. And so if you are single or if you are married, you've heard me say this before, you are simply a steward of everything. 
You're a steward of your singleness, and you are a steward of your marriage. And so you've, you've also heard me say this, how good of a servant you are is determined by how you act when you are treated as one. And so if I am a servant or a steward to my marriage, then I need to, uh, I need to really be introspective about that. And if I am offended about my introspective perspective about uh, uh, my singleness, then I might need to listen to my heart, not so much what culture is saying about these things. So this morning, this sermon does not intend to discriminate, uh, and nor am I intending to be judgmental. For, for me, it doesn't matter if you're single, uh, if, you're, if you've never been married, or maybe you're divorced, or if you're widowed, uh, whether you're single for a season or single for a reason. It, it does not matter in the context of this message. It may matter in the context of your perspective. It does not, do not overlay your perspective on what I'm saying. Because I think one of the things that we tend to do is to take what I think and have Scripture here and use what I think or what I've been taught or what I've been handed to filter what does Scripture say. When the truth of the matter is, what the Scripture would tell us to do is to take the lens of the Word of God to filter my perspective. And so it's really important for us to do that this morning. What does the Bible say about singleness and marriage? Now I have found that 1 Corinthians chapter 7 will, will be, I cannot go into every passage, uh, and so I'm, I'm going to try uh, to stay you know, pretty, pretty tight within one, but uh, if, you, if you haven't already turned there, 1 Corinthians chapter 7, I want to start reading in verse 7, but, but this passage of Scripture is the most comprehensive, and, and by that I mean, well, I'm, not, I'm not going to 1 Corinthians 7 because it says what I want to say. You could go to any of these other passages and they do not conflict with each other. And, I, and, we'll, and we'll do that a little bit, but uh, I just want you to know I'm not picking this passage because it's the one I want to use. I'm picking this passage because it's the most complete and it ratifies what it says everywhere else. All right? Now, before I read that, I want to just say this. While the church has valued marriage, and it should value marriage, I believe that the church has inadvertently or unintentionally devalued the season or the gift of singleness. And what it does is it causes people to feel empty unless they're married. Like marriage is the lofty, like you can't, can't be taken seriously or prove your adulthood or your, or your maturity until you've proven that in a marriage relationship. Then people can start seeing that you're solid and that you're mature and that you've settled down a little bit. I don't think the church intended to do that. Sometimes the church even pushes people with positive peer pressure, even intending to be positive, pushing people to marriage and rushing them to make a decision. And it creates emptiness after marriage and a longing for the freedom of singleness again. And it is a real issue. It is a much bigger issue than most people recognize. Now, the church can't be blamed for individual people's decisions at the end of the day, but I do believe that the church can provide a proper framework to process for the future. So the, and another thing I would say is that the Bible is incredibly clear about these relationships. So as we move through 1 Corinthians chapter 7, I'm going to just set up the context of why Paul is writing this. This was written by the Apostle Paul, 
who, by the way, is single. I think that's very important because I'm so glad I'm sharing the stage with him this morning because, uh, you know, it's one thing to give advice or opinion or exegesis as a married man, but Paul's not married, so uh, hopefully you can hear his words today and not, and not only mine. Paul is writing to the church in Corinth. All of these things are obvious. Paul, though, is in the, uh, the uh, country, a city of Ephesus. While he is writing this, he's pastoring another pagan city, establishing a church there that he will write to later. But this is roughly AD 55. And while that's important is we know that during this time, Nero is the emperor and he is really revving up his persecution against the Christians. And uh, if they're found out to be Christians, he, he has gone from using them as a personal play toy to making them a public spectacle. So he has went from taking Christians and dipping them in tar and burning them alive in his own gardens to creating coliseums where people, thousands, hundreds of thousands of people could come and watch them torn limb from limb. And so this is the, the setting that, that Paul is writing to. And so he is writing to the church at Corinth. In the church of Corinth, there is a temple there devoted to the goddess Aphrodite, who is the goddess of like beauty and fertility and all of these things. So, so in order to go, if you went to Corinth and you went down to the temple to worship, when you got to the temple, you would recognize that there are hundreds, in fact, history tells us probably thousands of temple prostitutes. And so in order, a part of that worship would be to go into a prostitute. And so you would go to worship and sleep with prostitutes. So there's all kinds of sexual debauchery, not just taking place in the place of worship, but taking place in every part of this city. And so Paul is speaking to these people, and they are coming out of this sort of worship, out of these sorts of lifestyles. Paul even says to them, you know, they get to be pretty judgmental. And he says, some of you used to do this stuff. So we know these people weren't model citizens before Christ, but they're seeking to be Christ-like after Christ. And so they're taking within their framework, they are doing what a lot of Christians do. If you're saved as an adult and God calls you out of real evil, wickedness, addictions or whatever it is, you form this hatred, resentment toward the things that had you captivated. And that's, that's well and good. That ought to be true. But we start creating hedges around these things. So if God says don't do this, well, we're going to really protect it. And then we start pointing fingers at everybody around us and say, God said don't do this and so you shouldn't do any of this. God didn't say that. So these Christians are doing what a lot of Christians do, and that is to overcorrect. I did not say overreact. I said overcorrect. So they're saying, if sex is bad, so because sex is evil, maybe when we become Christians, we should also avoid anything close to that. Even including marriage. And so these Christians actually wrote Paul a letter in Ephesus and said, what does the Bible say about singleness and waiting <laughs> and marriage and the entire book of 1 Corinthians? So actually, Paul starts this context with, in a previous letter, you asked me this question. So I'm going to start this sermon by saying this. In a previous email, you asked me this question. 
And I'm only going to simply say what Paul said 2,000 years ago. I think we'll find it sufficient for today, okay? He essentially says, you should experience intimacy, but only with your own spouse, according to God's design. Verse 7, he says, I wish that all of you were as I am. What does he mean? He's single. That's what he's talking about. Not, I wish you were as I am an apostle, or a believer, or a man. But I wish, maritally speaking, relationship speaking, you were single. Now, again, he says, I wish, not God says. And I think that's very important for us to understand too. It does not say that it is God's wish. All single people wish that everyone else was single and that marriage wasn't an obstacle. But God said in Genesis chapter 2, verse 18, Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man, and believe it or not, in the original Hebrew, there is a definite article here. So when God, and a lot of times we quote this passage of Scripture and we say, that it is not good for man. It does not say that. It says it is not good for the man. He's speaking directly to Adam. That the man should be alone. I will make him, not mankind, him, Adam, a helper fit for him. This is an Adam and Eve story. This is not an all humanity story. For Adam, a helper was necessary. He was all alone. That's a lot of work. Also, to provide a framework for the future of humanity in regard to children, a female was necessary. God had told Adam, be fruitful, multiply, inhabit the earth. And so God created man. God created a woman, a relationship to place them in. Immediately in that relationship, a marriage and then he created intimacy so that they could achieve the purpose that he called Adam to. In, all in that order. In fact, Genesis chapter 2, verse 21. If you're taking notes, just write this down and go back and check me later. Genesis chapter 2, verse 21 says, So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon a man, the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he said unto a woman made into a woman, and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This at last. Now, I don't know how old Adam was. Probably minutes. But for Adam, minutes was a lifetime. Can you imagine? I don't know how old Adam was, really. Creation, I mean, the first thing he does is name the animals and goes to sleep so that God create a woman. And what does Adam say? Finally. <laughs> at last. This is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife. And they shall become. By the way, and is the equal to this plus this plus this plus this equals the goal one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. You ever wonder why Adam and Eve had to get married? I mean, there were no other people. I mean, if two people only, a man and a woman, were on the earth, would it be necessary for them to get married? Scripture says yes, because there's something about that relationship that requires marriage. Requires marriage. 
So because within the permanent bond and commitment of marriage is where we find the fulfillment of intimacy with one another. And when we relate emotionally, when we relate physically, when we relate mentally to someone that we're not married to, it does damage to the point and future of marriage. When we pretend at times to be married and act like we are married when we aren't, it does damage to the image of marriage and the point of marriage. We get the thrill of intimacy and closeness and friendship and relationship and the joy of relating physically to someone but without the commitment. So what you do, the Scripture has three forms of love. We love with passion, that's with our bodies. We love intimately, that's with our minds. And we love at a commitment level which is spiritual. And what Scripture would say is when you try to love physically and intellectually or emotionally or mentally with someone without the commitment, it will not work and messes the whole thing up. So relationships must be formed at that commitment level. And once that commitment is truly made, can you, can you experience a level of physical Joy and emotional connection without commitment. Of course, people do that all the time. And they're satisfied with it. But we're satisfied with so less than what God intended. Because I'm telling you, once that commitment has been real, true, biblical, marital commitment is made, the, the physical love and the emotional love is whole other level. But those connections are created out of the commitment. Today, we want to see if we're compatible with someone. So we experience this and we experience this to see if we want to invest in this. That's relatively new. And it is a perversion of what God established for us. We make the commitment. And then, out of that flow. Because I can tell you, there will come a time when these things are not going to be the best. This holds those times together. So yes, it is absolutely necessary. In fact, God never calls Eve woman. He calls her wife almost immediately. Almost immediately. And the man, verse 25, and the man and his wife. Her first breath, God created and performed the very first marriage. You see, the commitment part of the relationship was the point. Because the commitment exists, the joy and the intimacy can exist. The joy and intimacy of a marriage relationship can only truly be found after the commitment is made. Now the dating period that we call it, and by the way, that's not found in every culture. I think it's a good one. But the dating period only exists in order to determine if the commitment can be made. If the relationship exists for any other reason, the relationship becomes selfish for one or for both. And we may say, who cares if it's selfish? It matters because God has a point for every relationship. Your relationships do not belong to you. They belong to the Lord. And if you're using your relationships for yourself, you're in error and you're missing the point. It does damage to the picture he's trying to paint. Your relationships are his for his glory. 
And once you use them for His glory, listen, if you can't make a commitment to Christ that stands, you can't make a commitment to another person. Your commitment to Christ, now listen, so you can do this without this is physical relationship, without commitment. You can even have emotional relationship with someone and not have commitment. Believe it or not, there's a lot of people who make a commitment here and don't honor it. It's a commitment until... Now, I'm going to say this, and I want to be very, very clear, and I want this to carry you. There are times in a relationship where a relationship does not work out because you cannot reason with unreasonableness. You cannot rationalize with irrational people. Sometimes people want to be committed, but their spouse can't be or won't be, or even abusive in some, in some times. So we have to be very sensitive to that. I'm not, blank, I'm not trying to make blanket statements, but I don't have time to deal with every little thing. So give me a little grace and we'll share that. The only reason to honor this commitment for the length of the relationship is because of my commitment to Jesus Christ. That is the motivation. Does that mean that people can't stay married for 30, 40, 50, 60, 70 years if they're not Christians? Of course it doesn't mean that. Of course it doesn't mean that. But even though they stay married, their marriage may miss the point that God was trying to use it to prove to the world around them. Let's turn over to Ephesians chapter 5, the what I would call premier passage on marriage. There's not very many of those. <clears throat> but Ephesians 5 is certainly one. When Paul was writing back to the church at Ephesus, now if we start at verse 22, we will create a lib- women's liberation movement. <laughs> it, it did. And there's a lot of hatred from a lot of the world because wives submit to your husbands is so disrespectful. If we would start at verse 21, I think we could have done a lot better, which is submit to one another. So wives are not asked to do anything that everybody's not. I mean, I'm submit to my wife because it says here, submit to everyone. So this word is actually a pretty not great translation. The word actually should be translated respect, which is a much different context if, if we can put our heads on that. So... Respect one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, respect your husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church. His body of which he is the Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church. And he gave himself up for her to sanctify her, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word. And to present her to himself as a glorious church without stain or wrinkle or any such blemish, but holy and blameless. In the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. Indeed, no one ever hated his own body, but he nourishes and cherishes just as Christ does the church. For we are members of His body. Now listen to this. Paul quotes Genesis chapter 2. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become 
one flesh. Now this is very interesting because it seems to me that the goal of this is to become one flesh, which, by the way, the husband and the wife were before they were married. Now they got to work to be that. They were already that. And now they got to work at it. This mystery, Paul said in verse 32, this mystery is profound. The mystery of marriage. And that is that Paul is painting the picture to give us the mystery of why marriage existed in the beginning. It's to paint the picture of the wife who is the representation of Christ and the husband who is the represent—I mean, of the church and the husband is representation of Christ. So God uses marriage as a picture of Christ's love for the church and the church's respect for her husband. Now I think that's a very interesting picture to paint and it is a tremendous picture to paint. This is one of the reasons why I believe that God hates divorce is because in a world where no one believes in unconditional commitment, unconditional love and surrender, God gave marriage. He said, I want to show you what it looks like with flesh on. So in most marriages, because we're either rushed into it or we don't understand the commitment that we're truly making, which is why 85% of marriages have a greater success rate if they have gone through biblical counseling concerning marriage. That's significant, folks, to understand the motivation for marriage. It's no guarantee, but it's helpful to understand. So that... And, and, and so what marriage becomes is when you use either dating, singleness as, you know, for selfish reasons, or you go into marriage for selfish reasons, and sometimes we do that and are not even aware of it. When we do that, we think that something is inside of marriage that we're hoping to gain instead of something to give. Marriage starts swirling all sorts of ways. And so she may feel very unloved, and he may feel very disrespected. Now, I love that Scripture never tells a woman to love her husband. Why? That's never been an issue. Now, now she doesn't like him a lot, but she loves him. And, and the Bible never tells a man to respect his wife. Why? Because that's the language men speak. But men have to learn love, and that ain't easy for a man. And women have to learn respect. And that ain't easy for a woman. So the marital relationship is about learning. We make the commitment and then we learn how to hold fast to it. So oftentimes she will say, well, I feel very unloved. And so what she tries to do is to overcorrect. If I'm feeling unloved, then I'm going to disrespect him enough to where he'll start loving me. Listen, ladies, I know that that seems logical. That does not work. You can't disrespect a person to get them to love you. And men feel very disrespected and says, you know what, when she starts loving me, when she starts respecting me and valuing me, this is ridiculous. So this is really the biggest issue within a marriage relationship is him feeling disrespected and her feeling unloved. So when, when people come and ask me my opinion on that, I will typically say, here's a, here's a great tool, all right? Uh, I think the b- biblical principle would, would apply here, and I've got a great way for you to find some hope. Wh- whomever in the, in, the, in the relationship of the marriage is the most spiritually mature, 
that's the person who should start. Right? So ladies, if you are being disrespectful to your husbands until he loves you, if you're the spiritual one in the family, you need to knock it off. Because your commitment to respect your husband has nothing to do with how he loves you. That was your commitment. Fellas, if you are feeling unloved and you're going to, or disrespected, and you're going to say to yourself, you know what, I'm not going to love her until I feel more respect from her. Well, if you're the spiritual one in the couple, you need to love your wife regardless of how you feel because that's where your commitment was. Otherwise, you're just going to live right here. And the relationship can't be lived right here. It's lived right here. That's what will hold it together. So, and your commitment to love your wife had nothing to do with the amount of respect you feel. When you st- Let me tell you, God created in our DNA that women want to respect a man who die for her and proves it. It's in our DNA. And men can be respected by the world, but if they don't have that respect from their wife, the world's respect is meaningless. It's just the way God created it. I can't explain it any other way. So, I think this is why God hates divorce, is because in a relationship of marriage... In marriage is where we get to practice the fruit of the Spirit more often than any other relationship. This is why God hates divorce. It does the damage to that picture. It tells the world that it's right. And it teaches the world the wrong things. The fear of marrying the wrong person or having trouble in marriage has caused us to avoid it or to fear it and to live then with the benefits of marriage and the byproducts of marriage without the commitment. And the commitment is the point of that relationship. We turn marriage into something that's for us. We still have the desire to paint this picture of marriage, but we've turned marriage into something that's, that's for me. And we hear people say, I'm looking for someone who can fulfill me, satisfy me, make me happy, find, help me find contentment. Listen to me very, very closely. If you're looking for someone who can bring that into your life, you can stop because it doesn't exist. Marriage, the point of marriage was one flesh. The point of marriage was not happiness, was not contentment was not fulfillment, was not satisfaction. Marriage was never meant to do that. It was, though, intended to help us learn patience and forgiveness and acceptance and surrender and humility and love. So we use marriage in our culture in ways that it was not given, and now we're seeking to avoid it. Marriage is on the decline because of this. And so this then has caused us to use singleness in ways that it was not intended to be used as well. So, back to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. He says, I wish all of you were as I am, but each of you has your own gift from God. This is, a, this is an incredible statement. One has this gift, another has that. He is not talking about spiritual giftedness. The next thing he says is, Now to the unmarried and the widows, I say, it is good for them to stay unmarried as I do. He says, those of you who are not married, that's good. 
That's good. But as a concession, as a concession, not for the point, but if you cannot control yourself, and he's talking about sexually, you should marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. Paul says that singleness is a gift and every word of Scripture is not from Paul. It is God-breathed. This is not Paul's word. This is the word of God. And God Himself is saying that singleness is given as a gift. The Greek word is the word charisma. It translates literally... A gift that is given according to God's grace. Singleness is one of God's grace gifts to humanity. Everyone doesn't have that gift. And so when you see, use this, the seeing the, something as God-given gift, it's the, the, in essence realizing the need to use that gift the way the gift was intended to be used. Not a gift given to you that you can use however you want. So if singleness is a grace gift by God, then that gift must be used the way that God intended for that gift to be used. No different than marriage. If God gives you the gift of marriage, your marriage is to fulfill and establish God's purpose in it. Not your own. Your marriage isn't for you. It's for His glory. Similarly, your singleness is not for you. It's for His glory. You're not a single by accident. It's a gift. So I know you're maybe here and you say, well, how do I know if I have the gift of singleness, this great gift? Is there like a money back? Uh, you know, I've got to return this gift? Is any kind of voucher I can get? I, I know. I have this conversation a lot with folks. So how do I know if I have the gift of singleness? Well, I've been asked that question a lot, and so there's a little test. You might want to write it down, because people you know want to know this. So here's the, here's the test. Nobody's writing it down. This is really good. It's just a, it's one question, really. It's only one question. Now later you're going to say, what was that one question? Well, I'm telling you right now. So here's the question. How do you know if you've been called or have the gift of singleness? Question, did you wake up this morning single? So it's, this, this is a fail-proof. The only, there's only one exclusion of this question, and that is if it's your wedding day. <laughs> right? It's the only exclusion to this whole test. Uh, but this is, this is true. So, you know, if you woke up today and you're single, then that singleness is God's gift to you for this day. And that singleness is to be used for His glory, not your own selfishness. This is, this is really, really rich. And I'm not trying to be insensitive. I really am trying to lighten the tension a little bit. But I'm not trying to be insensitive, right? So, the second question is, okay, pastor, smart aleck, is that gift forever? Does God, has God called me to singleness forever? And here's the answer. Well, I don't know. I mean, you can't get through the day. Why are you worried about the future? I don't know what God wants to do in your life. You don't either. Here's what I do know. You're single today. You need to be single for the glory of Jesus Christ. 
You need to get your eyes off anything else in this world that you think is going to bring satisfaction and fulfillment to you and to know this, that Jesus Christ is the only place to have that. So if you're single today, you need to be content and you need to live for the glory of Jesus Christ. If you're married today, then you need to be content and let your marriage be for the glory of Jesus Christ. We don't get God's five-year plan for our lives. If we live for self... That's what we want, is a five-year plan. Today is all we need to be faithful. Usually, it, with God, it's, I'm going to give you today your daily bread. Mercy is for today. Salvation is today. It's always today. It's never tomorrow, because tomorrow has its own worries. And when you think about tomorrow, it's going to create anxiety in your life. And you don't need more anxiety. Today's got enough for itself. What are the anxieties for today? My life poured out for the glory of Jesus Christ. How am I going to do that in the best ways? Tomorrow I'll wake up and ask the same question. Some of you are in marriages right now. You're like, man, I did not know it was going to be like this. I'm pretty miserable. It's not the way I wanted it to be. I'm not accomplishing what I wanted to accomplish. My, I'm not happy I'm not happy. I don't have joy. We fight all the time. We argue all the time. And if, it's, if the next 10 years are going to be like this, whoa, 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 wait. You can't get through today. Don't worry about 10 years from now. Why are you projecting today on the next five years of your life? Your job is this, to use the gift that God gave you to get through this day. And the grace that gets you through this day will be sufficient tomorrow. But we'll worry about that tomorrow. If you're single and you say, I cannot stand a life like this, don't worry about your life like this. Get through today. That's where His grace is available. His calling is today. The grace to accept that calling is today. But if you're looking for something other than Jesus Christ to find fulfillment, you might find some substitutes and end up making some pretty poor decisions. And Jesus teaches us that marriage is permanent. Well, you sure would rather have your fulfillment in Christ before you bring somebody else into your baggage. This is why we should find fulfillment in Christ and not in marriage. Find fulfillment in Christ, not sowing wild oats. If you woke up single today, then you have that gift today. If you woke up married today, then you have the grace gift of, of marriage today. So many people are looking to lose the gift instead of using the gift. Single people want to be married. And the more discontent and unsatisfied people find in relationships, more married people want to be single. And it's getting worse and worse. What I find, though, is that this is not a married or single issue. We cannot be guilty of reducing single people to second-class citizens. We're going to talk about that in a few moments. But this is not a single or married issue. This is a contentment issue. This is truly about being satisfied where you are with where God has placed you at any one time. We want so many things in this world, and including Jesus. And so when we keep our eyes on anything, anything over Christ, or even in addition to Christ, these things are going to turn into idols. And some single people have turned marriage into idols. And some married people have turned singleness into idols. I will say this, everyone 
has a capacity to be discontent with the season of life that God's given them. And instead of using the gift and finding contentment, they want to lose the gift. Now Paul makes it very, very clear that he sees singleness as a gift, even though, this is very important, singleness means celibacy. Verse 9, he says, If you cannot control yourself, not give yourself opportunity outside, not whatever excuse you want to give, if you can't control yourself, you either learn to control yourself or get married. But sex outside of marriage is in no way permissible according to God's design. It perverts singleness and it perverts marriage in a single act. Sexual intimacy is not available, even if it's consensual. I hear that all the time. Well, it's consensual. But it is exclusively found in marriage and never outside of marriage. And if you're single, it can make you feel like God's holding something back from you. He's not. He has another good gift for you that you need to see. So how does Paul see his singleness as a gift? Because he has learned to trust the giver. He's learned to trust the giver of the gift. If you're single, then that must be good. If you're married, that must be good. The question is not, am I single or married? It is, am I living my life for the glory of Jesus Christ? When we truly trust God, trusting God is the base for contentment. Contentment is not an issue if you trust God. It's when you want things in addition to God where contentment is the issue. And we, especially in our culture, are very discontent. Very discontent. Always looking for something else. And all of those other things keep us distracted and tempted. And everything we're pursuing keeps us from pursuing Jesus Christ. And sometimes it's things as noble as a marriage relationship. Don't get distracted. Your purpose is not marriage. Your purpose is to know Jesus Christ and invite your life, His life into their life. And verse 9 says, if you cannot control yourself, marry. In 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 6, it says, But godliness with contentment is great gain. Godliness, and along with godliness comes contentment. Now, a lot of people are looking for contentment, but not godliness. If you will find godliness, you'll find contentment. But if you're looking for contentment, you'll find neither. Godliness with contentment is great gain. When we learn to use our life as a tool for Him rather than a means for my joy, my happiness, my pleasure, listen, that will only bring temptation and striving. Philippians chapter 4, verse 12. He's not talking about marriage. He's not talking about singleness. But Paul's wrote writing to the uh, Philippians. He says, I know what it is to be in need. I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation. My point is not to exegete this passage of Scripture. It's to say this, that contentment is learned. And if you're single, you can learn contentment. But you can only learn contentment when you pursue godliness and fulfillment and satisfaction in Jesus Christ. When He is your everything, you're content. 
Same thing is true in marriage. If you're looking for your spouse to fulfill you and sustain you and satisfy you, boy, you are on a long, long road. Learn contentment. If what you have been given by God doesn't look good to you, then one of two things is true. Number one, God's not finished yet. Or number two, your perspective is off. In Luke chapter 11 and Matthew chapter 7, it says that God is a good father and that good father gives good gifts to his children. In fact, James even says in James chapter 1 verse 17 that every good and perfect gift comes from above from the father of lights. So as Paul has learned to trust the giver, he's able to use the gift as the giver intended him to use. And marriage teaches us a lot. Marriage teaches us that, that Christ loves sacrificially His wife, the church, the bride. It also teaches us the, the, the need for the bride to respect and surrender to the spiritual authority of Christ. What a beautiful picture that is. But you know what? Singles teaches us something too. So, so for those who think that marriage is the epitome of, merit or of, uh, of adulthood or maturity, it's just not. Marriage teaches us some things about the relationship that singleness doesn't teach. But singleness teaches us something that marriage can't teach. And that is that Jesus Christ is sufficient. But when single people are discontent, it can't teach that. So you waste your singleness. It's a gift that goes in a drawer. Singleness teaches us that Jesus is enough. Singleness teaches us that Christ will sustain us. That our joy is in the Lord. And that our strength is in Him. And that our identity is in Him. So imagine how the giver must feel when he gives you a gift and you use it for selfish and sometimes evil purposes, feeding your own flesh. Marriage isn't the goal. Contentment in Christ is the goal. If you're single, be content in Christ. Teach us something. If you're married, content in Christ. Teach us something. Verse 28. Back to 1 Corinthians 7. I'm almost finished. I'm not really, but I'm going to be. But if you do marry, you've not sinned. Well, that's great news. Because these people were looking to get out of their marriage. But if you do marry, you've not sinned. If a virgin marries, she has not sinned. But those who marry will face many troubles in this life. What? We thought that marriage was like the perfect union of two perfect people. Who skip in the rose bushes? It's rose bushes, all right. Except mine. Mine is not like that at all. <laughs> but those who marry will, will, not can. Those who marry will face many troubles in this life. And I want to spare you of this, Paul said. Paul, is in his mind, he's like, man, I deal with marriages all the time, and they are a headache. Why in the world would you want that? So, here he says, What I mean, brothers and sisters, is that the time is short. From now on, those who have wives should live as if they do not. 
Those who mourn as if they did not. Those who were happy as if they were not. Those who buy something as if it were not theirs to keep. Those who use the things of the world as if not engrossed in them. And you're like, what is he talking about? The time is short. What he does mean is this. The world in its present context is passing away quickly. And you want to get tied up in another human relationship? There are people all around this world, 42% of the world have never heard the name of Jesus, and you're focused on marriage? That's what Paul would say. Time is so short. You get married, you're going to have all kinds of distractions. You're probably going to want to start having kids. And you're going to want to start having to fix roofs and leaky pops. And you're going to have to start paying all kinds of uh, other attention to things that are going to just keep sucking life out of you. And sucking life out of you. And you're going to be almost completely blinded to the gospel of Jesus Christ and the good news to get it out. Nobody is suited to be better to reach the nations than single people. Why? Do you think he, I would be in Ephesus if I were married right now? No, I'd be at Walmart at home. Cutting the grass. Think Paul would be a church planner if he had three kids in T-ball? Why would you want that? Time is short. People are going to hell and you're worried about relationships. So, if you're not married, don't get married. If you are married, you better live like you're not married. What in the world is he talking about? Here's what, here's what the context tells us and the original language tells us. That when, and, and, and we've turned it into this noble thing and we've devalued singleness as a result. But if you are married, and we, we say you know, family values or very family focused, family friendly, family this, that, or the other. And that's all well and good and it's got its place. But listen to me closely. There's a lot of times who people begin to value family at the expense of the glory of Jesus Christ. There's people in this room who are tempted to put family first or even their marriage above their relationship with Jesus Christ. There's a biblical word for that. Idolatry. If you're choosing the noble way and choosing your marriage first, investing in my marriage, but you're not investing in your relationship with Christ, it's idolatry. And if you're putting your kid's schedule above your time with the Lord and evangelizing and getting the gospel out, it's idolatry. I don't care what you call it. So he says this, there is a family that will last forever. Brothers and sisters, listen to me. When we get to heaven, we're going to be brothers and sisters. But we're not going to be married. They're not going to be your kids in heaven. You've got a family that's deeper. It's spiritual. And you'd better be committing to them because that's who we're going to live eternity with. So if you're married, live for eternity. Now, if you want to know how to do that, he's got lots of advice of how to live married in this world. How to honor, how to love, how to respect, how to cherish, how to invest. But man, all of that is for the glory of Jesus Christ. If you're not careful, you can turn your family relationship into something that you've included Christ on. What a distraction and what a waste. Because it's not bringing glory to God, but your relationship, your marriage, and your family certainly brings a lot of joy to you. This, that is not how it's intended to be used. 
Your marriage is for the glory of God. Your family is for the glory of God. And your singleness is for the glory of God. I'd say there's a lot of marriages that's got a ton to learn from single people. But if we're not careful, single people will sit over in a corner and say, when my time come? When will my time come? Your time is right now. Nobody is better equipped to serve the nations than single people. Nobody is more free to minister in the local church than single people. Not second-class citizens. Now, I would say primary. Serve when nobody else can serve. When everybody else is distracted with the many burdens of the relationship, bust out and be leaders and show us what it looks like to put Jesus first. That's what I would say. Be empowered in your singleness. It is a grace gift from God. Don't be a second-rate citizen as a single person waiting for your time to come. I understand the feelings of that, but I want you to know that God does not set you aside until such a time. He has actually put you on the front lines to serve the nation. Most of the people who've turned the world upside down have been single people because they've been free to do so. I think of Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who was a single man who stood up against Nazi Germany. And he created an entire army of people to go with him to do this. You know what his one requirement was? Can't be married. An army full of single people. Isn't that nuts? I think of Mother Teresa who says no to everything so that she can serve her entire life in a place. Corey Tenboom, I can't get caught up with a family. I've got to go out and tell what God has done in my life. Over and over and over and over. Oh, and by the way, Jesus Christ chose to live in this world as an example of godliness as a single man. But He chose to demonstrate that for all eternity as a married one. Don't use marriage as an excuse. Don't use singleness as an excuse. (laughs) People say, if you want to use singleness for your own pleasure, you're going to miss the point. For your freedom, you're going to miss the point. People even say, single people sowing their wild oats, or, you know, they're figuring out what, what, and and, and what what do we call it? We say, you get married, you settle down. You know, know, it should be settling down. You should say, you know what? I am so tired. I've been to every continent. I have preached to millions of people. I think I'm going to settle down and get married. You know what? I have served hours, hundreds and thousands of hours. I am exhausted. I think I'm going to settle down and get married. Some of you say, well, my marriage just doesn't make me happy. Well, happiness is just a commercial for the eternal joy of knowing that you lived your life on task for the glory of God. So don't make your marriage an idol. Don't make your children an idol. Don't make any relationship an idol. Verse 28. Man, marriage, you want to have trouble. <laughs> so, those who, those who are married experience trouble, right? <clears throat> I mean, I heard you when I said that earlier. It seemed to be a little bit of a... I just want all the single people in here to hear that. Colossians chapter... 2 verse 10 
says, in Christ you have been brought to fullness. If you're looking for fulfillment, satisfaction, you ain't going to find it anywhere other than Jesus Christ. And when you know Him, you'll trust Him. And when you trust Him, you can be content. Is marriage in your future? I don't know. If that's what you want, I'm sure that God doesn't want you to be miserable while you are burning with passion. But for some, it may be a part of what God has for you. But it does not get to define you. Jesus Christ is what defines us. It's in Christ that we have our identity. So, when Paul is teaching this, no, when I'm teaching this, I'm teaching Paul. When Paul is teaching this, he's teaching Jesus. Matthew chapter 19. Jesus says this, Not everyone can accept this word. What was the word? Talking about marriage. They have questions about marriage. Jesus says, this is where he uses the phrase again, one flesh. And they say, okay, well, one flesh, what's that mean? He says, well, literally, two become one. What God has joined together, let not man separate. So you say, okay, well, how permanent is that? Well, it's real, it's permanent. You need to look up the definition of permanent if that doesn't make sense. Permanent. They said, like, permanent, like when she changes her looks, permanent? No, permanent, permanent. Like, like burn the toast, permanent. No, permanent, permanent, permanent. Like, you mean for all time. I mean for as long as you're breathing. And so... Jesus said, not everyone can accept this word, but only those to whom it has been given. That sounds like a gift to me. Only to whom it has been given. For there are eunuchs who were born that way. Eunuch is someone without reproductive organs. For there are eunuchs who were born that way, and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by others, and that is the most unfortunate kind of eunuchs. And there are those who choose to live like eunuchs. That means to live celibate lives for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. The one who can accept this should accept this. Jesus says that. That's what Jesus said. So use your singleness for the glory of God. Nothing, not one thing is holding you back. In fact, everything is pushing you forward. Use your marriage for the glory of God. Not one thing is holding you back. Except discontentment. That's what the Bible says about singleness and waiting. Let's pray. Lord, I just pray that your spirit would be uh, very present this morning. I don't know what you intend to do or to say, but I pray, I would imagine that today your spirit is saying many things to many hearts. So I just pray, Lord, that you would give us one more time the, the grace needed to hear your voice, not mine. Uh, I ask, Lord, that, in, that, that you would continue to use our church as a beacon of light that reveals Christ to the nations and to our neighbors. I pray that you would use us whatever gifts that you've given us. 
I, I ask that when, when the, our, our neighbors or in the world looks at us, that they would be able to see satisfaction and fullness in you. So Lord, where we have fought that, where we are discontent, Lord, I pray that you would grant us repentance. That wherever, whatever state we find ourselves in, we would find our fullness in you. Our identity in you. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Will you stand with me? I know this, this invitation is hard because I, it can't really be about marriage and singleness. Uh, but it can be about contentment. So maybe you're here this morning and you're single and you are wrestling with that, what it means. I hope that maybe today the Spirit might have given you some, some questions to ask, some things to pray over. You're here this morning and, and, and you know, you're, you're discontent in that relationship uh, with yourself, with Christ. Uh, maybe you could ask for grace that would sustain you. <clears throat> maybe you're here this morning and you're married and you've been looking for your spouse to accomplish things that your spouse can't do. So it's, it's, it's caused you to be a little bit distant. Maybe a little hard-hearted. It created a crazy cycle in your marriage. Uh, maybe today you need to pray through that. Maybe you think you'll never find happiness again unless you're married. Maybe you think you'll never find happiness again until you're single. I, regardless of where you are, there's lots of places to be this morning, regardless of any of those. Why don't you just, why don't you just pray? Ask the Lord to forgive you for finding motivation and a desire in anything other than Him. Ask Him for forgiveness. Because until you feel the forgiveness of God, you learn to trust God. Trusting God will grow contentment. If you need help finding or taking your next step, send us a message at hello at myconnectchurch.cc.